0: So last week, if you were here or if you weren't here, we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13 to start. And this idea that the whole storyline of the Bible moves from covenants of promise, multiple covenants of promise, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And how he fulfills each of those previous covenants in the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament. So last week, the covenants of promise in the Old Testament... This week, the new covenant of grace in the New Testament. So this week, I think it's helpful for us to think about Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. This is at the top of your handout. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So this week we look at the covenant of grace, the new covenant in the New Testament, which is the covenant that the Lord Jesus brings with him when he comes, so to speak. It's the covenant that he himself inaugurates as the fulfillment of all of the previous biblical covenants that we looked at. So if you were here last week, you remember this diagram. Raise your hand if you remember this on the last page of the handout. Okay, great. So I'm going to kind of redraw that just so you can see it again. It's not going to be necessarily new, but I think it's helpful to put the pieces together as we go. You can see on the handout, we're going to advance the same main idea. God's one plan of salvation is progressively revealed and accomplished through the many biblical covenants. God's one plan of salvation, which is that anyone who knows the Lord is going to come to know the Lord by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone the Lord Jesus, who's the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. So the one plan of salvation, the promise that God is going to save people from sin, is progressively revealed and accomplished through the many biblical covenants. And we looked at last time those sort of six major biblical covenants as you're thinking about the Bible, you're thinking about some key figures in the sort of turning points of the narrative from Genesis all the way to the end of your Old Testament and the New Testament. So if you want to write these down, Adam, Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel under Moses, and David. And then, of course, Jesus, the New Covenant. So I want to pick up right where we left off last week, which is the promise of the New Covenant. So we looked at those five covenants from Adam to David last week at length. We're picking up in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah the prophets. Because what we're going to look at is how in the Old Testament itself, there's the promise that this new covenant is going to come. So Jeremiah 31, who will read verses 31 to 34? Pat?
1: Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant for the house of Israel and the house of for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and
0: I will remember their sin no more. Amen. Thanks, Pat. One thing that's happening in the storyline of the Bible, especially the end of the Old Testament, is these prophets mm-hmm. are being raised up by the Lord to speak for him and to say, You broke my covenant, but if you'll turn from your sin and trust me, the Lord is saying, then I can restore you. Right. So if you're just answering from Jeremiah, one of these prophets who's speaking about this new covenant, let me ask you, why is there a need for a new covenant? What does Jeremiah say? We broke, they broke it. Because they broke the old covenant. Good. And what's coming with the new covenant? What does Jeremiah say? Forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins. That's letter A on your handout. Sins will be forgiven in the new covenant. What else? New hearts. New hearts. Say more about that, Sharif. What does that mean for Jeremiah?
1: Um, Basically, he's going to enable them to desire what's good and to
0: follow after the Lord. Yeah, because where was the law in the old covenant? You can tell from Jeremiah. It was outside. outside. Verse 33, do you see that? Now, where's the law going to be in the new covenant? Inside. Inside. We're moving from the law written on tablets of stone, which is what the prophets say, to the law being written internally on hearts. And this is going to become even more clear when we look at Ezekiel, which is where we're going next. So turn to Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 36. One of the things you're going to notice as you read the Old Testament, especially the prophets, is that this new covenant is spoken about in a number of ways. There's just the new covenant, which we just saw in Jeremiah. There's also the covenant of peace, which we'll see in Ezekiel and Isaiah. Then there's the everlasting covenant, which is, I think, Isaiah's language as well. These are all speaking about the one new covenant that the Lord Jesus inaugurates and fulfills. He brings in the New Testament, right? That's where we're moving. We're moving from Old Testament to New through the mouths of the prophets first. This promise of the new covenant that in the new covenant, unlike the old covenant, there's going to be new hearts that know God's law. There's going to be sins finally and fully forgiven. And then what does Ezekiel say? Who will read chapter... 36 verses 22 to 32. You got it?
1: Therefore, to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations, to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, in which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant, and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations." Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel.
0: So let me ask you, just based on repetition, as you're listening to Ezekiel there, what's the most important thing he wants you to know? There you go. Yeah. Why is God doing this new covenant work for his glory? Because his name has been profaned. Remember how we looked at last week, this idea that the son of God, Adam, the first son of God, is going to be a priest who represents God to the world. We're going to look more at that here as we move into section two this morning. And then Israel as a nation, God's son. Is going to be a kingdom of priests that's the language of Exodus 19 they're going to be the nation God's nation that shows the world what God is like if they'll just hear his voice you remember this but what have they done instead they've heard his voice but they didn't obey yeah they disobeyed right even the prophets would use the language of they stopped up their ears and they closed their eyes so this new covenant work is coming specifically because the Lord's name has been profaned. The world hasn't seen clearly what God is like through God's people because they haven't obeyed the voice. That's the story of Israel. So in this new covenant work with new hearts that understand God's law internally, with sins forgiven, then we're going to have a kingdom of priests, so to speak. What else do you see from Ezekiel? There's two ideas. There's a lot here, obviously, but two ideas in particular I want to bring out from Ezekiel's promise of the new covenant. Do you see something different from what Jeremiah said? Of course, we saw new hearts in both. Cause you to be obedient. Cause you to be obedient. Yes. So the law is going to be written internally. Good. Clean and unclean. If you want a cheat sheet, you can look at your handout. They're going to come back from the nations. All right, where is that? Verse 24 in Ezekiel 36. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Now, you remember at this point when, the, when some of the prophets have come up, Israel, because of their disobedience, has been kicked out of the land and they've been scattered to the nations. So what you're getting right here in Ezekiel and in other places is that God is promising that he's going to bring his people back from the nations. There's going to be a return from exile. You ever heard that phrase before? You remember when we preached through Ezra and Nehemiah and we saw this return from exile? But what becomes so clear by the time you get to the end of Ezra and Nehemiah is that the return from exile happened in some sense. Like God just bringing his people back from the nations didn't change their hearts. They're still disobedient. That's why Nehemiah ends the way it does with him pulling his hair out and pulling other people's hair out. Because they're still breaking the covenant. Hang on to that. So there's going to be a gathering from the nations. What else? The second thing from Ezekiel 37, 36. Look at verse 26. That's right. So I'll give you a new heart we saw that in Jeremiah and a new spirit I will put within you whose spirit God's spirit God's spirit is going to be put inside God's people in the New Covenant the law is going to be written inside them instead of just outside them on tablets of stone they're going to be given new hearts instead of hearts of stone they'll get hearts of flesh and then you get in chapter 37 the next chapter of Ezekiel this long story about a, va- a valley of dry bones is what it's called. Valley of skeletons. And God says to Ezekiel, prophesy to them. You remember this story? It's kind of funny how it happens, right? Well, what do you mean? <laughs> and then the Lord says, can these bones live, Ezekiel? And Ezekiel gives the non-answer. You know, Lord. Right? Why are you asking me? So this idea is that by prophesying the word of the Lord over dead things, life is going to come. And you can tell from other prophets, Joel 2, for example, which I'll just read for you. Part of the new covenant promise when Jesus comes with this new covenant enacted on better promises is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on everyone. Not just on the leaders of the people, but on everybody in God's people. And it shall come to pass, Joel says afterwards, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your younger men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. So there's this massive outpouring of God's spirit on all of God's people, from the least to the greatest. All right, flip to Isaiah 54. Last one we're going to look at. Yeah. Yeah, so that's speaking about inside God's community. There's going to be a water that we drink, and it doesn't leave us thirsty anymore. Which, if you're listening, right, that sounds like the Lord Jesus, right? Remember, he's at the, the, the well in John 4, and one asks him for a drink, or he asks her for a drink, and he says, let me tell you about water that you can drink that leaves you satisfied. Living water, right? I think that's the... I think it's a spiritual satisfaction, yeah, which is being illustrated by physical grain and water, and then ultimately, in the new heavens and the new earth, there's not going to be famine anymore, right? So that's one of the things we're going to talk about in this new covenant, is there's, a, there's an already, and there's a not yet, which we looked at a little bit last week, um, and a lot of the already is spiritual, and a lot of the not yet is physical, if we just want to say it simply like that. It's a good question. So let's look at one more uh, promise of the New Covenant, this one in Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54, I told you the New Covenant's referred to in a couple of phrases. New Covenant, Covenant of Peace, Everlasting Covenant. We'll see another one here. Who will read just the first few verses of chapter 54? Shannon, you got that? Uh, The first few. Just go until I tell you to stop. (laughs) Pause. Who's he talking to here? Why do you say Israel? I don't know who said that. Oh, well, it doesn't say it in those verses, but my assumption is Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, is prophesying to the people of Israel, because yep. they're in exile, so... Yeah. Because there's no mention of Gentiles yet, or other people, other than his audience. Sure. Who's the barren one? Anybody know what that sounds like? Sounds like Sarah. So Israel's a good guess, yep. Now, the one who can't bear children is going to bear children abundantly in Isaiah. And look at verse 3, which Shannon just read. Your offspring, which is going to be numerous, will possess the nations. There's the Gentiles. Keep going, Shannon. Verse 4. This is after Abraham. Yeah, so Isaiah is one of the prophets who's come up. Yeah, it's not a dumb question at all. Uh, we're kind of jumping around here in a bunch of different books, so it's a great question. Um, yeah, it's, Abraham is going to be Genesis 12. Isaiah and the prophets are going to come up around the time of the exile, some of them before the exile, some of them during, and some of them right after, right? So we're looking at those guys that are raised up by the Lord to speak to the nation of Israel about their breaking of the covenant, and to call them back to the Lord and to tell them in this case a new covenant that's not going to be like the old covenant right good question keep going in verse 4 for you will not be, ashamed,
2: be not for you will not be disgraced for you will forget
0: Pause for a second. Verse 5, what does that sound like? Think in terms of covenants. Your maker, keep going, is your husband, the God of the whole earth. What does that sound like? If you're thinking in terms of covenants. Sounds like Adam. Sounds like creation. God has created everyone and everything, and he's speaking to them about how Then he says at the second half of verse 5, he's not just your creator in Adam. He's also your what? Redeemer. So we're talking about the rest of Israel here. Israel's broken the covenant. God is going to act in such a way that he restores them. Keep going.
2: In anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion
0: on you, says the Lord to a redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, because I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over here. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and I will not redeem you.: Pause. Who that sound like? No. Sounds like Noah, interesting. <laughs> so we've moved from Abraham to Adam to Noah. It's just interesting that the Bible's retelling of its own story goes along these same lines we've been thinking about in the last week or so together. Keep going. Verse 10. For the
2: Whoever stirs up up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for his purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon
0: that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication. Okay, pause. We're going to keep reading in, verse, in chapter 55 in just a second, but let me ask you two questions. Look at verse 10. What do you see referred to there that we're looking at specifically? You see that phrase? What's the thing we're thinking about this morning? Covenant. Mm. The covenant of peace. So there's the other label for the new covenant, the promise of the new covenant in the prophets. And he's talking about this covenant of peace that won't be removed. This covenant of peace that, as a part of it, includes God's steadfast love that never departs. You see that? So there's not going to be an exile in the new covenant. There's not going to be the breaking of the new covenant in such a way that God's people are not God's people anymore. Right. That's how dramatic this is, this language of the prophets, that God's unfaithful wife, in some sense, has been divorced. Right. That's what Malachi says. That's the imagery... Uh, of Isaiah in chapter 54 that we just heard, verse six, his wife deserted him, right? And then what are you seeing uh, so far in chapter 54? Who's addressed, we already answered this, but say it again. Who is this speaking to or about? Israel. Israel, and you get a little bit of a hint, remember in verse three, that maybe other people are involved from other nations, but now look at what happens in chapter 55. Will you keep going, Shannon? Yeah. Come, everyone. Who? Come, who? Everyone. Everyone. Keep going. mind your ear and come to me, Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. There's the everlasting covenant, keep going. My steadfast, sure love of David. Pause. Who does that sound like? Sounds like David, that's interesting. God is going to make this new covenant, this everlasting covenant of peace, because of his love for David. So we've already heard in just these two chapters, Abraham, Adam, Noah, and David. And we're speaking to the nation of Israel under Moses. You see that? Keep going, Shannon. Who does that sound like? Well, it's definitely talking about David, my sure love for David. But what's interesting about David, and we thought about this last week, is that he becomes the representative for the nation as their king. He's going to do, if he'll listen to God's word and obey it, what the nation hasn't done. He's going to be a witness to the nations, to the world, a light to the to the nations, to the world, for God. Keep going. Behold, you shall call a nation.
2: Oh wait, behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. And a nation that did not know you shall run to you. You shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he
0: has glorified. That's where we're gonna stop. What just happened in verse 5? Who doesn't know the Lord? No. The Gentiles. A nation that you do not know shall run to you. So, in just the span of chapter 54 and chapter 55 in Isaiah, which if you haven't figured it out yet, everybody probably remembers chapter 53. You remember the suffering servant? So, it's going to be the work of the suffering servant, chapter 53. Bringing this covenant of peace, this everlasting covenant, bringing the steadfast love of the Lord to his people in a way that it never departs from them. It's going to restore Israel. He's going to be not just their creator, but also their redeemer. And it's going to include Gentiles, other nations that don't know God. So we should be looking by the time we end our Old Testament and start our New Testament, we should be looking for these promises to be fulfilled. God has said he's going to give people new hearts. He's going to forgive their sins. He's going to fill them with his spirit. He's going to bring nations who don't know him in. He's going to restore Israel, and that's going to include other nations that don't know God. That's the promise of the new covenant, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Any questions about the promise of the new covenant before we go into the section here will be the fulfillment of all these biblical covenants we had been looking at. That's where I'm going to redraw the diagram and kind of walk through each one and show you how Jesus fulfills the main emphases of the covenant. But any questions about what we've done so far? a question. Yeah? Yep, that's a great question. So a couple of things. One of the things that's on your handout is Matthew 26, Luke 22, under point one, letter A. So if you remember in Jeremiah 31, I'm using this as an example to answer your question. In Jeremiah 31, who's the new covenant spoken to? You can go back and look at it if you want to. But if you know it, just shout it out. I will make a new covenant with... Yeah, what's, what does Jeremiah say? the house of and the house of interesting covenant is for the house of Israel and the house of Judah okay well then flip to Matthew 26 or you can just listen if you don't want to flip there that's totally fine Matthew 26 where the Lord Jesus himself to Sharif's point is speaking about the new covenant and he's saying It's being inaugurated right now it's come pay attention this is what the prophets were talking about matthew 26 verses 26 to 29 i'll read it jesus says now as they were eating jesus took bread and after blessing it uh, broke it and gave it to the disciples he's at the the last supper the institution of the lord's supper and he says take eat this is my body and he took the cup and when he had given thanks Uh, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Which covenant? covenant? The new covenant. The covenant of peace. The everlasting covenant. Which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Who does Jesus think the new covenant is for? It's for his disciples. That's who he's talking to. The people who are following him in faith and repentance. They're going to have the blessings of the new covenant. The covenant in his blood. And Jesus, to Sharif's point, seems to think if we had been reading Jeremiah, we would have understood this. That even what we looked at today, the tip of the iceberg, right, that the restoration of Israel is going to include the Gentiles. It's going to, God is going to gather his people from the nations, which is not just going to be ethnic Jews, but anyone who believes in Jesus, which is really clear by the time you get two chapters later, at the end of Matthew, all authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of Israel? No, of the nations, of everyone. And then in the book of Acts, which we've been preaching through, what happens? The gospel goes to not just Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. Yeah, interesting. So this new covenant is going to include everyone who has faith in Jesus. And Jesus seems to think reading the Old Testament faithfully includes understanding this fulfillment of it. Now, one of the things we've done in the last two weeks is try to make that a little bit more clear with our main point. God's one plan of salvation is progressively revealed and accomplished through the many biblical covenants. So if all you're reading is the Old Testament, you don't have the fullness of God's revelation. Read the New Testament. Get the authoritative uh, interpretation of God's word, where Jesus and the apostles tell us this is how you're supposed to read the Old Testament, right? So if we're just reading Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and not quite understanding how to get there, read Matthew and Ephesians and Romans, right? And see what the apostles are doing with the Old Testament. And then, yeah, we just all have to honestly conform ourselves to their interpretation because it's the right one, right? Even though that may be difficult for us to work out the pieces, it's very clear they are, And the new covenant is made in Jesus and everyone who has faith in him, which is not just ethnic Jews. It's it's anybody from any nation who believes in the Lord Jesus, right? Does that help answer your question? Yeah,
1: yeah. Especially the part about, the you know, because you know, even with, you know, the different, you know, Sadducees and uh, Pharisees, sometimes he would, you know, are you not a teacher of
0: the law? Yeah, <laughs> right. And I think it's a condemnation for them because they're teachers of the law. They should certainly get it. So if you're here hearing me say that, or thinking about the words of Jesus, I don't think he's condemning you for not understanding the Old Testament in the clear way that the apostles do. That condemnation is to people who would be teachers of the law who don't understand it, right? If you're struggling, Jesus would say, keep coming, and keep giving grace, right? Um, so he's talking to people who I think are stubborn and stiff-necked and are trying to be teachers of the law, but they themselves don't understand it, and that's why it's a condemnation. Any other questions about the first section there, the promise of the new covenant? Yeah. Uh, it's not exactly about the promise of new covenant, but last week we were talking about like, signs of covenants. Okay. So are there signs for every covenant? Good question. I think explicitly we get signs for Noah, the rainbow, uh, Abraham, circumcision, Israel under Moses, the Sabbath, I don't know if there are signs explicitly in the text for Adam or David, and then I think the sign of the new covenant would be baptism, okay. right? Or in, externally, internally, it'd be regeneration, the work of the Spirit. Yeah. Um, would marriage be uh, for Adam? M- marriage is itself a covenant. Um, the reason we haven't looked at marriage in the last two weeks—it's not one of the biblical covenants that is the storyline. So, that's not to say marriage isn't a covenant. It's just to say we're concerning ourselves with specific kinds of covenants, the major ones in the Bible, that kind of move the story along, right? So, we're not told in Adam, in Genesis 1 and 2, that marriage is the sign of that covenant. Um, but there is language later in, in the Bible that makes it sound like marriage is a covenant. I think it is one. Um, we're just looking at Adam through Jesus because those are the storyline of the Bible covenants. Does that make sense? Yeah,
1: yeah, I thought so. Mm.
0: yeah so this is a question about what covenant signs are Um, covenant signs are symbols of the relationship and we're just not told in every case what that symbol is so the sign of the covenant of marriage maybe for example might be the wedding ring right this symbolizes the vows I've taken to my wife that I'll be faithful to her that she'll be faithful to me in God's strength of course Um, this would be kind of like a covenant sign marriage I wouldn't say marriage itself is a covenant sign for Adam um, certainly Jesus and his church are bride and groom and that's absolutely part of Ephesians 5 is where we see that maybe most clearly um, I would call that typological or typology um, which is related to but different from what we've been talking about happy to talk more about that afterwards So let's move on to section two, the fulfillment of the biblical covenants. I wanna kind of walk through Adam, Noah, Abraham, Israel under Moses, and David, and show you how Jesus fulfills each of them in the new covenant. So you remember, this is time across scope of covenant, covenant membership, who's in and who's out. Here's the creation covenant. The creation covenant, you remember from last week, has to do with Adam being made in the image of God. The image and likeness of God. That's the language of Genesis 1. What does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God, if you remember from last week? What What does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God for Adam in that covenantal context in creation. Ah, so now I see you want to ask me all the questions. I want to ask you some questions, too. Yeah, so Adam is the image of God, and he's supposed to image God. We talked about last week, it's a noun and a verb. That's absolutely right. We could say even more about what it means for Adam to be image of God and likeness of God. Those terms in the ancient biblical context meant something specific. Image conveys the idea of having dominion. Likeness conveys the idea of close relationship between two parties, in this case, Adam and God. When we speak about the image of of God in Adam, there's this idea that Adam is supposed to be a ruler under God over his creation. Adam is supposed to be what? What does that sound like? Starts with a K. A king. Adam is supposed to be a king under God. And when we speak about likeness, we're speaking about a close relationship between Adam and God which means part of imaging God is going to be exactly what Mark just said, reflecting what God is like to the rest of the world. What does that sound like? It starts with a P. Priest. So last week we thought about how Adam is a king and a priest. He's supposed to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, to have dominion. Adam gets God's word as God's son, Luke 3 says. Adam is the son of God. He's the image of God. He's supposed to be an obedient, faithful son who hears God and obeys God. What does Adam do? Not that. Not that, Genesis 3 says very loudly. No, he's an unfaithful son. He's a disobedient son. So Adam breaks the covenant in creation between God and man. Jesus, the New Testament says... Is the last Adam. Jesus, the New Testament says, is the Son of God who's faithful. Jesus, the New Testament says, hears God's Word and obeys God's Word. Jesus would say, I don't do anything of my own will, I only do what the Father tells me to do. When you're hearing that, you're thinking, you're supposed to think, Adam. He's the last Adam. He's the faithful son of God that we've been waiting for. And in Genesis chapter 3, in the midst of the curse for disobedience, you get exactly that promise. Somebody's going to come from this woman, Eve. Her offspring is going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to reverse the effects of this curse that's been brought on the world because of man's disobedience. Jesus is the last Adam. In Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, all die. In Christ, do you know it? All shall be made alive, or all live. Yeah, so Jesus is the last Adam. He's the Son of God. He's the true image of God. He's the faithful Son, the obedient Son. Now, Noah. You remember Noah? This word is Noahic, the Noahic covenant, or the covenant with all of creation in Noah. Noah is doing what in the Bible's storyline? Adam's broken the covenant with creation. God floods the world because of man's evil. And then after the flood, God chooses Noah. The text says he has, he's found favor in God's eyes. God saves one man and his family and two of every kind of creature through the judgment of the flood, even in something made of wood. And so then there's a new covenant, not the new covenant, but a new covenant with Noah. And with who? Everything in creation. That's what we looked at in in Genesis 9 last week. God says he'll make his covenant with Noah and his offspring and every living creature. And the rainbow is going to be the sign. So Noah is another Adam, remember? Remember? Maybe Noah will be a faithful son. Noah is still made in God's image. Genesis 9 is clear. Sin hasn't disrupted, removed the image. It certainly disrupted it. It hasn't removed the image or the likeness. It hasn't changed humanity's purpose. Men and women are still, still supposed to image God because they are the image of God. They're supposed to be fruitful and multiply. They're supposed to have dominion over all the earth. And God... Re says all of these things to Noah. You remember from last week? Some nodding. Good. So, what happens with Noah? Why a covenant with Noah? Start here. What's the promise to Noah? I won't destroy the earth again with a flood, God says. Why? Man should be flooded because he hasn't changed. But, God says, I'm not going to destroy man. Why? The Noahic covenant is a covenant of preservation. You could write this down on your handout. We talked about this last week. It's a covenant of preservation. It's, in some sense, a new Adam and a new creation and a new people, but who have the same problem. So, under Noah, we get provisions for human government, If you spill the blood of man, by man shall your blood be spilled. Genesis 9, 5 and 6. So under Noah, God promises, I'm not going to destroy the earth again with a flood. So that the promise of salvation can be accomplished, can be fulfilled. So Noah is the platform upon which we see the work of Christ. Noah is still in the image and likeness of God. He's still given this idea of be fruitful and multiply. Jesus is the true image of God. He's the one who is image and images. He's the exact imprint, Hebrews says, of his nature. So you could look at Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, where it speaks about the image of our creator. Jesus is the perfect image of God in true righteousness and holiness, in knowledge of God. Or you could look at Romans 2, where it says that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, which I think is a good verse to just slap on the Noahic Covenant. God is going to preserve the world so that his promise of salvation can continue to go forward. And then we get one man. Noah proves not to be the faithful son because he gets drunk and naked with his offspring, which is not something you're supposed to do. He doesn't hear God's word and obey it. He disobeys just like Adam. Then we get a new promise with a new man who? Abraham. Abraham. I'm just going to write Abe one man from the nations and what does god promise abraham land seed and blessing, land, seed, and blessing. that's right we looked at that last week it's going to be abraham and his family that god is going to use to do what bless the nations, bless the nations. that's right there's going to be an offspring of abraham flip to genesis 3 or flip to sorry galatians 3 galatians chapter 3 there's going to be an offspring of abraham who God is going to use to keep his promise to Abraham and to reverse the curse under Adam. The seed of Abraham is going to bless the nations. Galatians 3, verses 6 to 9, who will read it? Joseph, thank you.
1: Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you, so that those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer.
0: Did y'all see what just happened? This is massive. Who are Abraham's sons? Right from Galatians. Who are Abraham's sons? those who have faith. Faith in who? Jesus. That's right. So the sons of Abraham are those who have faith in Jesus. Over and over again, that's what you get in the New Testament. Listen to Romans 2. You don't have to turn there. Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. Listen to this. This is incredible. The sons of Abraham are those who have faith. Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. You remember the sign of the covenant with Abraham is circumcision, which is where you cut off a piece of flesh, and the blood is very significant, that someone should be killed because we've sinned. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Paul is here looking to redefine What's a true Jew and what's true circumcision? And he tells you, verse 29, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His presence is from God. So who's a true Jew? Those, faith. Those who have faith. What is true circumcision? Having the spirit. Interesting. So it's going to be Jesus, who's the offspring of Abraham, who then unleashes the promises of Abraham to the sons of Abraham, those who have faith in him. And then you remember Galatians three said something really interesting that the scripture did what? If you're still there, it's in verse eight. Told Abraham the gospel. Told Abraham the, gospel. the Bible preached the gospel to Abraham. Saying what? What was the, the gospel declaration there in Galatians 3? It's in verse 8. All the nations are going to be blessed in you. Have you ever called that the gospel? I don't think I have. The Bible does. It's interesting, the promise to Abraham and the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham in Jesus to the sons of Abraham who have faith that then blesses the whole world. The Bible calls the gospel. How about that? So Jesus, the seed of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, is going to fulfill the promise to Abraham. Look at uh, Galatians 3 if you're still there, verse 6. Now the 16, sorry. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Galatians 3:16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, plural referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. Christ is the offspring of Abraham. Then in the story of the Old Testament, you get the nation of Israel. So we've gone through Adam and Noah, And Abraham, and now we're at Israel, how is the covenant with Israel under Moses fulfilled? You'll notice Abraham is the ancestor of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is not the only nation that's in the covenant with Abraham because all the nations are going to be blessed. But the vast majority of the nations in the Old Testament don't know the Lord. So maybe you're thinking about Rahab, for example, who's not an ethnic Jew, but seems to know the Lord she'd be an example of what it looks like to be in Abraham and not in Israel. Then by the time you get to the New Testament, the New Covenant, anybody in here Jewish? Room full of Gentiles. Interesting, seems like we reversed a little bit. Like all of God's people in the Old Testament for the most part are Jewish. In the New Testament, everybody in this room is Gentile. Doesn't mean there aren't any Jewish believers today, there are some, but they're few and far between kind of like Rahab in the Old Testament. So the covenant with Israel under Moses Turn to 1 Peter 2. This is amazing. We're just seeing over and over and over again what the New Testament says about the Old Testament. It takes up these words and phrases and ideas, and it tells us the right interpretation of all of them. And it's showing us how not only are the the covenants we've been looking at central to the storyline of the Bible. It's how the story progresses. It's all the turning points in the narrative. It's also showing us that the new covenant is the fulfillment of every promise God has ever made. That 1 Corinthians 1.20, Jesus is the yes and amen to all of God's promises. Look at 1 Peter 2. Read verse 9 and 10. Who will read verse 9 and 10? You got it. Jesse, right? Yeah. Good. You are a chosen race, a
1: royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received a but now you have
0: received Now this is incredible. Look at the three phrases in verse 9. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Does anyone in here know what that sounds like? sounds like Israel be more specific where does it sound like Israel I'm hearing someone whisper it which is kind to give others a chance to answer (laughs) Exodus 19 you can turn there if you want to we looked at this last week where the covenant under Moses with the nation of Israel and God is most clearly initiated is Exodus 19 to 24 In Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6, you hear this. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be, listen, my treasured possession among all the peoples. What does that sound like? Sounds like a chosen race. One group of people among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. What does that sound like? A royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests, priests and kings, a whole nation of priests and kings, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does that sound like? Sounds like a holy nation. Yeah, so it's interesting that Peter, who's Jewish, picks up these three key phrases in the constitution, if you will, of the nation of Israel as God's nation, and he applies them to the church. Because who's he writing to in 1 Peter 2? Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. How about that? You think he's writing to any Gentiles? I think so. Is he excluding Jews? Not the believing ones, no. He's writing to the church. The church is a multi-ethnic family of God. A multi-ethnic, we could say, nation of God, if you will. It's not a nation on this earth, not in that sense, no. But it's a group of people who have a different kind of politics, if I can just put it provocatively, where we love our enemies. We don't just try to build up our army and crush them. We turn the other cheek when somebody attacks us. That's what the Lord Jesus, our King, told us to do. How about that? So there's this holiness, this royal priesthood, this people for God's own possession, this chosen race, the church, who's going to be the Israel of God. That's what Galatians 6 says. Listen to Galatians 6. Galatians 6 verse 14. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Listen, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Paul, writing to churches in Galatia, calls them the Israel of God. That's interesting. Why can he do that? Well, the answer is... Jesus. Jesus. The answer is Jesus. I'm going to get here, I think. This is Jesus, and this is him pouring out blessing on the world. This is the new heavens and the new earth. This is the judgment. We'll put a JC here so that someone can read this besides me. And then, through the to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, a chosen race, a people for God's own possession. That's what Peter's saying. That's what Paul's saying. The New Testament takes up these ideas and applies them to the church. Now, it's not just a straight-up replacement, like a bait-and-switch, like, here's Israel, I'm going to make some promises to them, and then, whoop, see ya, here's the church. No, it's not like that. We need to see this very progression, that Jesus comes as an Israelite, As a son of Abraham, obviously in the covenant under Noah as a creature, obviously in the image of God as a human under Adam, and then not only that, but as a son of David, Jesus picks up Israel's failed vocation under God to be a king, to rule under God, to be a priest, to represent God, and eventually to be a prophet as well, which we haven't spent a lot of time on, but we will in coming weeks. The one who speaks on God's behalf with authority. So, then anyone who's in Jesus by faith becomes a part of this Israel of God. Let's look at David, and then I'll pray and we can wrap up. So, David, what becomes really clear in this part of the Bible is that Israel's not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're hearing God's voice, but they're not obeying it. And that's why the prophets rise up. And then David, the king of the people, stands as their representative. And God makes a promise to David that after him is going to come a line of sons, just one line. There's going to be sons of David, and one of them is going to sit on David's throne and rule forever. He's going to be David's seed, his offspring, and he's going to have David's dynasty. He's going to sit on David's throne and have dominion forever. You can see how these same themes are coming up over and over and over again, all the way back to Adam. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion. Now in David, a king who's going to have a son who never loses the father's love. And then if you were to look at Acts 2 or Acts 13 and see how Peter and Paul preach about Israel's history and David specifically, they're going to tell you about the son of David, who's who? Jesus. Jesus, the last Adam. Jesus, the offspring of Abraham. Jesus, the true Israel, Jesus, the son of David, it's in him that all the promises of God are going to find their fulfillment, their yes and amen. Jesus is going to be the one who never loses the father's love and who unleashes it to everyone who will come to him in faith. Jesus is the king who knows God's word and obeys it, who represents his people. So what does all this mean for you? We looked at the promise of the new covenant. We looked at the fulfillment of each of the biblical covenants. I give you a little bit on the the back half of the page there at the bottom on what you can do with this. I think it's three things. One is see the whole storyline of the scripture as a means of glorying in every part of the Bible. So you wake up tomorrow morning, you open your Bible, and you turn to a random page. Say you're in the prophet Obadiah. Anybody read Obadiah recently? Oh, praise the Lord. Oh. So what do I do? Where am I? What's going on? Well, I think if you get a clear view of this, then you can touch down at any point and you can have a sense of where you are, what's going on, what are the covenants between God and man that are, that are active or operative, which ones have been broken, which ones have been promised. So you can kind of understand each part when you get a sense of the whole. Hopefully it makes reading your Bible in any given part a little bit more straightforward. It's not going to tell you everything. It's going to give you a good sense of where you are in the story. I think number two, it helps you to see Christ in all of Scripture. That if Jesus really is the yes and amen to all of God's promises, understanding this gives you a sense of each promise and how the Lord Jesus fulfills it. It gives you a sense of how to look for fulfillment in Christ, how to look for Christ specifically in the Testament. You're thinking about these ideas of Son of God, image of God. Faithful son, obedient son, seed of Abraham, seed of David. Right? These themes are going to be, if you read Psalms or the prophets or the wisdom literature, those are going to be the themes that are operating in the biblical authors' minds. So we want to climb into their world and try to understand them. Right? And then the last thing is, it puts us right now in context. We see the present as a continuing part of the story of Scripture, right? We're here. We're after Jesus, but we're before the judgment and the new heavens and the new earth. That helps us put things in context. We're, if we believe in him, we're in the Lord Jesus by faith. We're in his people, the church. We're waiting for him to return, right? We're in the already, but we're not in the not yet. So it helps us to put ourselves in the storyline of scripture and then live in light of that. Because of the time, I'm going to pray. And then if you need to go, feel free. I'll stick around if there are any questions. Father, we do thank you for this time that we can consider, even just briefly, the whole storyline of Scripture. We thank you, Lord, that you are not silent, that you've spoken to us about who you are. You've revealed yourself about who we are. You've told us who we're supposed to be, and who we're not like. We don't listen to your voice. We need someone who has. And so we thank you for the Lord Jesus, your faithful son, the obedient one, who in him we can be forgiven of our sins and have new hearts and have everything that we just thought about in the promise of the new covenant. If we'll just come to the Lord Jesus, we'll find him to be a perfect savior. So we pray very practically in light of what we've heard that it would help us to read our Bibles. That we'd return to your word with excitement, with a kind of freshness for this story that we're all a part of, that we find ourselves in it. We pray especially that we find ourselves in the Lord Jesus on the last day when he comes. And we do pray that he would come soon. As we go out from here and into the worship service, we pray that your word would be proclaimed faithfully. That we would find ourselves under it. That we would submit to you and hear you that we would lift up the Lord Jesus and look to Him and behold Him and believe in Him. Would you encourage us and comfort us with your presence? And would you be glorified in this church? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.